Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. Well, if this is your first time joining us uh, for this series, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob's an Old Testament character. And uh, his parents are Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca are in their latter years as we come into the story today, uh, but we're focusing on Jacob. Now, who is Isaac? Isaac is the son of Abraham, who's Abraham. He was the one that God called to go into a land he would show him. He was the guy through whom all nations would be blessed and that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac's sons were Esau and then Jacob. Esau and Jacob were twins. Esau was burly and hairy with a very red hair, and Jacob was smooth and silky, or as I said last week, smooky. Um, Jacob has tricked his brother out of his birthright, his firstborn son. Esau was born first, and in that culture, Esau, being the firstborn, would get two-thirds of his father's estate when his father died. He would also become the priest of the family, overseeing the spiritual needs of the family, as well as kind of the judicial person over the family, determining right from wrong and what kind of stuff needed to happen. Uh, so Jacob tricked Esau out of the birthright with a bowl of soup. If you don't believe me, go back and read. It's prior to Genesis chapter 30. He also tricked his dad, Isaac, out of blessing Esau as the firstborn. And so last week we talked about that. And we looked at the fact that Esau got so angry that he wanted to kill Jacob. So Rebecca, Jacob's mom, says, I want you to go stay with my brother Laban, who is out east. He's a bit of a travel away, but just, just go until your brother cools down. Um, last week, we, uh, the week before last, we talked about the tricking out of the blessing. Last week, we talked about how Laban tricked Jacob. Jacob met his match in his uncle Laban. Laban had two daughters. The daughter that Jacob fell in love with. It, for his love at first sight, he kisses her, he starts crying. It was a weird scenario, as we remember from last week. Rachel. Rachel was the second-born daughter, however, of Laban. And so on the wedding night, here's, the, the, here's what Laban told him. All right, they worked out a deal. You work for me for seven years, and I'll let you marry Rachel. So L Jacob worked for Laban for seven years to marry Rachel. The wedding night comes for Jacob. It only feels like it's been a few days because his love for Rachel so far exceeds any time limit that could be put on their love for each other. And the, the, the bed is set and they go into the tent uh, and Jacob is super stoked <laughs> and uh, wakes up the next morning having slept with his sister-in-law or so it would seem. Yeah, so Leah, the one that had beautiful eyes. Jacob gets pretty furious. How could you trick me like this? I love Rachel. She's the one that I, that I worked for you for seven years for. And Laban says, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it's not our custom to marry off the younger daughter first, uh, but I'll give you Rachel too. You work for me for seven more years. I'll give, it to her, I'll give you to her after a week, but you've got to commit to me uh, to work for seven more years. So Jacob does this. We come up on the scene today, 14 years have come and gone, and a few more years to boot. Jacob, and this is a crazy story. I'm not giving you the story today in sermon format, maybe at a future time. But if you look at uh, the first part of chapter 30, which is uh, the chapter we're going to be in today, Jacob begins to have kids with Leah. Leah 
Her womb is open. She starts to have kids. Rachel starts to get a little flummoxed by this and jealous that her sister can have kids, but she can't. And so Rachel gives her servant girl to Jacob to have kids with so that by surrogate, Rachel can have kids through her servant girl. And Jacob doesn't, he doesn't object. Sure, you want me to sleep with another woman? Okay. And so, and then Leah stops having kids. For whatever reason, her womb is closed up. She's not able to have kids again. And so Leah, in order to keep up with Rachel, decides to give her servant girl to Jacob too. Guess what? Jacob doesn't object. And so he sleeps with Leah's servant girl and Rachel's servant girl and Leah and Rachel. This is crazy stuff. Finally, Rachel's womb is opened up. She's no longer barren. She's able to have kids. After she has Joseph, who is the famous Joseph of Genesis, who was sold into slavery, Potiphar's wife, that whole story. Jacob says, I'm ready to go back home. And this is where we pick up the story today. Ready to go back home. Let me read you this illustration before we get into that. In February of 2008, James Fantroy was convicted of stealing over $20,000 of government grants while he served as a city council member in Dallas, Texas. Because Fantroy had, a kid, had kidney cancer and used a wheelchair, the U.S. District Judge, Ed uh, Kincaid, told him that he could choose between serving a month in prison or publicly apologizing for his actions, and then he'd be let off the hook. So it's either jail for a month, or you can just go on TV, publicly apologize, and all be forgiven. Fantroy chose to serve prison sentence rather than apologize. When he chose to harbor bitter, when we choose to harbor bitter feelings or resentment towards another person, we think we're getting even with them, but in reality, we're making ourselves prisoners. This is the deal with this scenario. He would rather, instead of apologizing for what he did wrong, he'd rather serve a prison sentence because his pride got the better of him. Sometimes our pride gets the best of us, and, and rather than bow out gracefully or admit that we're wrong, we will go down with the sinking ship of our stubbornness. Have you ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. We all have probably had moments in our lives where our pride has gotten the better of us, where we really have, have fought hard for our position only to find out we were wrong, but we still wouldn't admit that we were wrong even when we were proven we were wrong. Maybe you weren't like that, but do you have somebody in your life who's like that? Here's a simple test. Have you ever been at a grocery store, ready to check out, and you pick the shortest line only to find out there's a cashier in training or someone with a ton of coupons in the line that you're in? It seems like the shortest line. We plan and we scheme and we scheme and we plan trying to get what we can get out of life, correct? So you decide at this point, you want to move to a different line. We're gonna be here for hours. What ends up happening? You were in the shortest line to begin with. Somebody had a ton of coupons or there was a cashier in training and you thought, oh, I'm never gonna get through this line. So you move and you're stuck in that line. Now you have people behind you and, and you notice the other line that you were in, the person that you were behind is now checking out and walking out with their groceries. We, we fight and fight and fight to get our way, to get the best, to push forward. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But what happens when you have so many people fighting and fighting to be the first, to be the best, to get what they want out of life? What happens in life when everybody's doing that. It becomes what we call a dog-eat-dog world mentality, right? We fight to get our own way right away. We, we, we push and shove and scheme. And maybe, maybe you don't do this, and maybe you've never done this, but, but when you have a majority of people in the world that are living by the world standards rather than by God's, you have a lot of junk that comes into play. You have people pushing others out of the way. You have people cutting others off in traffic. You have people scheming in the workplace to get a leg up on the competition or on their coworkers so that they can get the promotion. You find this happening all the time. 
when you're focused on the self and getting what you want out of things, ultimately that will catch up with you in the long run. And if you haven't found that out yet, just give it time. It'll happen. So let's pick up Jacob's story. How does this play into Jacob's story today? Genesis chapter 30, we're starting with verse 25. If you want to read about the servant girls and Leah and Rachel and their babies and, and Jacob sleeping with all four of them at different times, then check out the first 24 verses of this chapter. I'm kidding you, it's worth the read. We come to chapter 30, verse 25 today. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so that I can go home to my own country. Let me take my wives and children, for I've earned them by serving you, and let me be on my, on my way. You certainly know how hard I've worked for you. Please listen to me, Laban replied. I've become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Tell me how much I owe you. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Do you think Laban's being honest? Let's look and see. Jacob replied, you know how hard I've worked for you and your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything that I've done. But now what about me? When can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want, Laban asks. So we go through this cycle again. What wages do you want? I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. Okay, the, tricker, the, the trickery happens the night of the wedding. He's with Leah instead of Rachel. Okay, I'll give you Rachel for seven more years. This is Laban's shtick, if you will. Jacob replied, don't give me anything. Just do this one thing, and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted along with the black sheep. Give those to me as my wages. Why is that important? Because it's the purer sheep and goats that come, that, that come with more money. So if you had a pure white sheep, it would sell for more in the market than a black sheep. If you, had a, if you have a speckled sheep or a speckled lamb, they don't go for much. So Jacob's saying, listen, just give me, give me your one-offs. Give me the stuff that's really not going to amount to anything for you financially. And you keep all the expensive stuff, right, when, in regards to livestock. Give these to me as my wages. In the future, when you check on the animals you'll, uh, you've given me as my wages, you'll see that I have been honest. You, if you find in my flock any goats with, without speckles or spots or any sheep that are not black, you'll know that I've stolen them from you. It's an easy way to test. All you have to do is you can go through my flocks after a while and inspect them. Laban, Laban thinks this is a great deal. All right. It'll be as you say. But guess what Laban does? That very day, Laban went out and removed the male goats that were streaked or spotted and the female goats that were streaked and spotted or had white patches and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his own sons, who took them three days' journey from where Jacob was. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed in care for the rest of Laban's flock. Now, to set Jacob at a disadvantage, what does his uncle do? He removes all the speckle and spotted lambs. He's like, uh, okay, I'll do this for you, but basically he decides, I'm going to take all the speckled, spotted lambs, the black sheep, and I'm going to give them to my sons. And I'm going to have them go three days journey away so that those goats and sheep don't mate with the, the clean and pure ones. And he sets him at a disadvantage, thinking that he's bested Jacob once again. Then Jacob took some fresh branches of poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they mated. Now, this sounds weird. I'm going to get to this in just a second. And when they mated in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock 
And at mating time, he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. It was kind of an old wives' tale in that day, or at least they didn't realize it was, that if, if you see something while you're pregnant, your child will become what you see. And so Jacob's taking that same thing and he's saying, I'm going to put streaks and spotted branches in front of the sheep so that when they mate, they're going to see streaks and spots so the babies inside of them will be streaked and spotted. Now, there's another commentator I read that actually said in the way it's translated in Hebrew that the, the, the poplar branches and the almond branches were more like phallic symbols. And instead of placing them in the troughs, it said on the troughs. You can mess around with the, the translation there a little bit. And it was as if uh, Laban's, um, Laban's sheep and goats that were pure in their outer appearance would face, the spec, or would face away and pleasure themselves on the sticks instead of mating together. However you want, I know it's like a pin drop in here. You're like, really? Is that really what happened? I'm just relaying information, all right? Uh, this, there's so many different com comments on this in the scholarly field. Here's what we do know. God is who knits together anything and everything in the wombs of animals or men and women. And God's favor was on Jacob. And the sheep began to produce. Now, if you know anything about genetic coding, there are recessive genes in everyone and everything. And in those purebred sheep without spots or speckles, or the goats without spots or speckles, there's a recessive gene in the DNA coding that after so many times of breeding, they will inevitably give forth a sheep or a goat with this recessive gene of spots and speckles or pure black. Okay? So after doing that enough, but there's been statistics done on, okay, they think this happened within a six-year period, that Jacob stayed another six years, ended up being there for 20 years before he went back home. And in that six years' time, it says, is it conceivably possible by genetic coding and interbreeding and all this other stuff for Jacob to have amassed a large amount? Yes. As a matter of fact, there is. But God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And so just outside of the natural breeding of sheep and goats, God's hand was upon Jacob and upon his endeavors. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, it goes on to say, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. They would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this whenever the weaker one, with the weaker ones. So the weaker lambs belonged to Laban, and the stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy, with large flocks of sheep and goats and male and female servants and many camels and donkeys, even with the, the multitude of speckled animals that he had. He must have had so many that it made him a wealthy man, even though they got lower price at the market. This one phrase sums up this whole passage, and this is what I want you to catch today. Demanding our own way will ultimately hurt us in the end. How did this happen to Laban? Demanding our own way will ultimately hurt us in the end. How does this, how does this happen? Well, first off, we notice, what does Jacob do? Jacob worked diligently and patiently to overcome this oppressive uncle. He worked diligently and patiently. Like I said earlier, Jacob the deceiver... Jacob, the heel grabber, Jacob, the liar, the trickster, met his match in his uncle Laban. And Jacob, having become humbled, I'm assuming, by living under such a trickster as his uncle, diligently serves his uncle. He doesn't run. He doesn't steal. Do you notice there's a character evolving in Jacob that was unlike his childhood and young adulthood years? He's becoming a man after God's own heart. He's becoming someone who, though he has a speckled past himself, is, is one who's saying, all right, I've, I've done too much, and I need to make things right. I've, I've got to be better. And so 
having met his match, having faced somebody who was much like himself, he realizes, oh gosh, this looks supremely ugly. And he begins to have kids, begins to start his own family. And he wants to break away from his uncle Laban so he can establish himself in his home, in his line. Jacob worked diligently. He worked patiently to overcome his oppressive uncle. Now we understand Jacob was a schemer and a trickster, but he overcame by doing the right things. Jacob had played by his uncle's rules for 14 years. He continued to play by his uncle's rules for another six years. Many of us have had this experience. Have you ever had this experience? You play by the rules, you work hard, you're diligent to overcome obstacles and difficulties in life, only to find that it's near impossible to break free from your current situation. You ever been there? You ever thought that it was impossible to get out from underneath the oppressive work environment that you're in? Or have you ever, have you ever been to, in a place or a relationship that was so controlling that it was smothering the life out of you? Have you ever had uh, temptations to do things you know you shouldn't do, and that temptation became a stronghold because you kept giving into it, and then it dominated your life, much like a Laban dominated Jacob's life? For 20 years, Laban was like that over Jacob. How many years has a stronghold or circumstance been in your life, hovering over you, oppressing you, weighing you down? And you think, I can never break free from that. I'm never going to get ever, I'm never going to be able to get rid of this. Living a normal life is hard enough, but it's even more complicated when the burden of those over us is not benevolent, but rather malicious. Who are the Labans in your life right now? And maybe they're not people. Maybe they're certain circumstances. Maybe they're addictions. Maybe, maybe it's, it's any number of things. Maybe it's sickness or disease. How have these Labans in your life controlled you and manipulated you? Who are the Labans in the world that try to dictate your every move and your every decision? Who is the one who can truly set you free by surrendering to his purposes and plans for your life? Who's the one that can set you free from those Labans in your life who try to hold you down and manipulate you and coerce you into do their bidding? Jesus is the only one who could set you free from that. You see, and Jacob knew there was a God in heaven who knew him, who loved him, even though Jacob had never lived that out completely in the way he should have. Jacob knew that God had blessed him. Jacob knew that, that it was through God that he was able to help Laban become wealthy and rich. And Laban even knew it, for he admitted it. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. You know what Jesus says? He says this to his disciples. And who is a disciple? Disciple is a learner, a student. And, and who does he want to be his disciples? Everyone. Actually, the Great Commission tells us that, right? Jesus gave to his 12 disciples plus the others that had come to follow him who were also disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and remember I'm with you to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And so he says, you go make disciples. And disciples, you need to go make more disciples. And disciples, you make more disciples. Not of you, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ alone. And so Jesus says this, if any of you wants to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you must turn from your selfish ways, Wait a minute, what did we start out with earlier? Pride gets in the way. We demand our own way. We plan, we scheme. How can we get the best out of this situation? And again, not that I said that those things are wrong in proper perspective and in proper order, but when we're doing it out of selfish means and motives, what tends to happen? We will do whatever it takes to get to where we want to go, to get what we want out of something. But Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. How many of you are trying to hang on to your life today? 
How many of you are trying to hang on to your status, your wealth, your success? How many of you are just trying to hang on by a thread? If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. He's not saying go out and kill yourself. What he's saying is give your life up, let go. It's like that illustration or that story where there's a guy who falls off a cliff and he's hanging by the root of this branch off the side of a cliff and it's foggy, he can't see how far below it is, but he hears somebody below him saying, let go. I can't. I'm serious, let go, it'll be all right. I'll fall, right, I know, let go. And the guy won't let go, even though he's only three feet off the ground. You see, that's what it is in God's economy. When he tells you to let go of your life, give it up for my sake, do you think you're gonna die? No, you receive eternal life. And see, eternal life doesn't start at the end of life when you breathe your last breath. Eternal life starts in the here and now when you surrender your life to Christ. If you want to hang on to your life, you'll end up losing it. You're going to try to fight and scheme and scheme and fight and do everything to get things your way. It's your life. You're going to live it the way you want to. You're going to ultimately lose it in the long run. But Jesus says, if you give up your life for me, if you give your life for me, everything you do, everything you say, every move you make, you need to make in me. Deny your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. Let me guide and direct you and show you what I created you for because you can never find true fulfillment in life for the purposes your life was created for apart from me. And, and it's interesting. We fight this, don't we? Because we think we know what's best for us. Am I right? I need to have, uh, uh, I need to have a spouse and uh, two point something children. And because the world tells us what success is. I have to have a job making X number of dollars. I have to have these types of friends or this kind of work environment. We have it all figured out because what the world tells us, you can't live by the world's standards and not get what the world offers. And you know what the world offers? Emptiness, loneliness. It offers things that are completely devoid of what, God, what God's purposes are for you. If you ever, I'm dating myself now, you remember the E! True Hollywood stories? Well, all these people that had amassed wealth and fortune and fame, and they came crashing and burning. Why? Because they spent it on drugs, alcohol, booze, sexual escapades. Any, they could have anything they wanted. And so they filled their life with what the world said you could have if you had a certain amount of wealth and status. And in every case, they came up feeling empty. Lonelier than they were when they didn't have anything. Why is it? Because they gave in to the lie that what the world had to offer was greater than anything that God could offer you. Why would I want to give everything up to follow Jesus? That sounds silly. I mean, that's not, how am I going to get successful that way? You see, in God's kingdom, success is totally opposite of the world's. What does Jesus say? I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom of God, who is the greatest? It's the one who serves, not the one who receives. Um, in God's kingdom, who is the first? The last. And who's the last? The first. You see, what he's getting at here is it's totally opposite in heaven than it is in the world. And if you want to keep getting what you've always gotten, continue to do things the world's way. You're going to come up empty-handed every stinking time. But if you want to save your life, give it up for his sake. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Second thing is Laban's efforts to outmaneuver Jacob and Jacob's God were in vain, ultimately. Try as he might, Laban was unable to manufacture a way to keep Jacob under his control. You see, when you're for God and when God is for you, 
Nobody can keep you under their control. Not really. Even his most glaring attempt to set Jacob up for failure ended failing him in the long run. Thinking he had bested Jacob, Laban takes every speckled goat, lamb, animal, and gives it to his sons and sends him on a three-day journey away from where Jacob is so that Jacob will have to fight his tail off to get anything if he gets anything at all. See, Laban must have thought, it's going to be impossible. I've tricked him yet again. I'm going to get him to stick around. I'll keep my daughters here, my grandkids here. He'll be with me forever. Have you ever had this happen? Have you ever come into some money that you didn't expect and you think, finally, I can be free from the debt or the obligation, but then all of a sudden your car breaks down or you have a medical emergency and you get frustrated because it seems like you can never get ahead? You see, Jacob comes up with a plan. This is what I'll do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll work for you for a little bit longer. You give me the speckled sheep and lambs and the black sheep, and then eventually I'll, I'll take those as my wages, and I'll go start my own family. And you think, okay, finally, I've got a leg up. I'm making, I'm making progress. This is going to work. And then, boom, you get hit. I can't tell you how many times we get a tax return we didn't expect. We're like, oh, thank goodness we can pay this debt off or we can, we can take care of this situation. And then, boom, the transmission falls out of a car or, you know, something like that. Has that ever happened to you? A couple times. And you're like, really? Are you serious? I can't get a breath here. I can't get a break. I know we've all had probably situations like that. My guess is that Jacob felt like this when Laban underhandedly took all the speckled and spotted animals and sent them off on a three-day journey with his sons. Jacob had to start from scratch. All of his hard work up to that point, over 14 years worth, came crashing down. Jacob thought, okay, He's going to give me the speckled and spotted. I'm going to leave the pure ones here. I'll work for him for a little bit longer, but I'll have enough uh, wealth that I can actually start on my own. And then he realizes, no, 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 it's been taken out from under me. The, the rug is yanked out. But God, but God, Laban testified to the fact that Jacob and Jacob's God had caused him to benefit and prosper. From Laban's own mouth, he says, yeah, it's because of God that you've prospered, that I've prospered under your, under your care. Didn't Laban really think that he could overcome Jacob and Jacob's God? That's a good question. You see, when you take the God factor out, you think you have all the control in the world. You fool yourself into believing a lie that, oh, I've got control of my life, I've got control of this situation or that situation. And then God says, yeah, not quite. Because you don't see what's coming down the pike. And so Jacob has all of this stuff happen to him, and then Laban does it to him again. And Jacob, instead of getting frustrated and saying, seriously? Are you kidding me, God? All right, have I not paid enough? Yes, I, I messed my brother over a couple times. I fooled, my, I fooled my dad into believing I was about, come on. How much more do I need to pay back before you forgive me and let me off the hook here? Have you ever felt that way? And Laban, who had become successful under Jacob's leadership, or at least his ability to do what he did best. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'll pull one over on him again. It's worked in my benefit in the past. It'll work again. But honestly, Laban, who confessed that God was the reason that Jacob helped him to become successful, had to know that God is quite a bit bigger and able to do more than he can imagine. But see, interestingly enough, if you read later, we're not going to get into this, this series, but but when Jacob finally left home, Rachel takes Laban, her father's idols, their gods from their house. So here's what, here's what pagan people do. 
they craft gods out of wood, iron, or metal and set them on their fireplace or something like that in their home, an honored spot in the home. And they'll have these little incense bowls where they'll burn incense in front of these little statuettes of uh, these so-called gods in their homes. Rachel, who was on her ladies' days, was riding on a camel out of town and is sitting on the idols. I think there's, no kidding, and, and Laban realizes, wait a minute, they've up and left and they've taken my gods. Well, why am I getting into all this? Because, see, Laban thought, that Jacob's God was just another God you sit around on a mantle. When actually he's the real God of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And those little carved wooden statues are nothing but that, carved wooden statues. And so Laban realizes, oh no, they've already left. They've taken everything. They've even taken my gods and my gods won't bless me now. I'm gonna fall into ruin. But God, Laban's selfish motives ended up backfiring when God intervened. Who brings forth life? Who does that? Now, now there are people that will debate with you. No, life comes from these amino acids and these strains that connect together under the right conditions and, and that formulate and da-da-da-da-da. Sure, a man and a woman have these necessary biological components to make life happen, but who is able to bring forth life in this marvelous wonder we call life? Who's able to do that? Who is able to bring forth life? Who is able to knit together the fabric of the DNA structure and make cells and sinews and muscles and tissues to come together so perfectly in the various forms of animation that we call life? Who but God is able to do that? Even biologists and medical uh, professionals today still are marveling at the wonder of the body, the human body, and, and the different facets of what makes the body work. They can tell you how it all works, but they can't tell you what starts it. What is that one, I mean, because you can't manufacture it in a lab, you might set the conditions perfectly in a laboratory or in a medical facility, but they have yet to be able to bring all of those things together to spontaneously bring forth life. Sure, you can read Frankenstein and see how he did it, but that's fiction. The Bible tells us how God did it. In the very beginning, he formed man from the dust of the ground, out of the dirt and the clay. He formed a human being. And what does it say he did after that? He breathed life into the nostrils of man. That kick-started the very heartbeat, the electric impulses of the brain, God. Well, well, how does he do that now? Well, the psalmist tells us he knits us together in our mother's womb. There's this part of the process that you and I get to create in God's great creation story. As husband and wife come together, the two become one, and they, and they, and they make new life. But without God as the one who starts the process in the cellular area, in the womb, it wouldn't become life. God brings forth life. Laban underestimated Jacob's God to bring forth more than enough speckled and spotted animals for Jacob to prosper in this impossible situation. Laban's plan to keep Jacob under his control backfired because he misunderstood the power of God. Laban didn't understand that with man things may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You may think at this moment right now sitting in this place that God doesn't care for you. You may believe that he's forgotten and forsaken you. Maybe you've convinced yourself that not only is the world against you, but God has turned his back on you. There is nothing further from the truth than that. God is for you. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be the one that gave himself for you on the cross. If God didn't think that any of us were worth it or anybody in history was worth it or anybody in the future that comes after us was worth it, would he have gone to such great lengths 
You see, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, would provide no other way to receive eternal life, to receive freedom, than through this process right here, with each hand nailed to a cross, his feet spiked to the cross, being mocked as the king of the Jews with a crown of thorns on his head, do you think God would have gone through all of that mockery, all of that, that rejection, if he didn't value life? <clears throat> we can't even value life now. Don't let me get on a kick about abortion. I don't know where you stand on the issue, but let's be honest about it. We have massacred 60-plus million babies in our country alone in the past 40-some years the ones that God began to knit together in their mother's womb. And we, we, we don't worship the gods of Molech or Baal who would burn their babies on, 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 on these altars. We worship the God of convenience or the God of my body, my right. And I know that I fall into a certain category saying those things. But God values life enough to give his life for it. And in God's economy, every life is sacred and valued. Born, unborn, deformed, mentally ill, every life is valuable. There is no life that is disposable, no matter what form it's in. No matter what choice it decides to make in its teenage or adult years, every life is valuable to God. And the church should be an open door for the sick, the hurting, the broken, the discharged from the world. Because God loves life. He gives life. He is life. Let me get back on track. close of this story. Wagner Dodge um, had a dilemma, except at the time he didn't know that he had a dilemma. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You're in the middle of a dilemma, but you don't realize you're in the middle of a dilemma until you're smack dab in the middle of it. On August the 5th, 1949, Wagner and his smoke jumpers were about to embark on one of the deadliest journeys they'd ever been involved in. They saw this fire from the air when they were kind of uh, paratrooping into this place and being dropped into this place. And, uh, and they, they jumped out and they saw the plane disappear into the smoke on ahead. They knew the fire was heading their way. All of the chutes deployed, every man made it safely down from the sky and they rolled up their parachutes and they began to march in single file down to the gorge where the Missouri River gently flowed. But when Wagner Dodge left his men in the middle of the gorge and scouted ahead to assess the fire, he realized that this might be the day he died. When he got within 100 feet of the fire, he made three discoveries that would change his life forever. First, he realized that the fire from which uh, uh, the fire uh, was much worse than they had thought from above in the plane. Uh, the wind was coming over the ridge and was whipping the fire a lot faster than he thought. Second, the swirling winds were blowing the fire above the gulch uh, up to the ridge. This meant that their escape route was cut off for them. Third, uh, as he directed his men to retreat, he discovered that the fire was in a transitional zone. So most forest fires can only travel about four or five miles per hour, which makes it easy for the smoke jumpers to outrun the fire, uh, but Man Gulch was a part of a transitional zone, meaning that it was in an area of the mountain that makes a transition between the forest to the plains. So shoulder high prairie grass uh, is mixed with the trees, the grass, which is so dense and dry, it's ready to explode with the withering blaze. So imagine this, I mean, it's just like an explosion 
where they're not going to be able to outrun this. The fire was pursuing them, and Wagner Dodge and his team of men were trapped in this grass with fire totally surrounding them at this point. Dodge knew that he could not outrun this wave of flame that surrounded them. And in just a minute, and, and, and in almost two minutes, he estimated that he, they would be burned to death at this point, sitting ducks in the middle of this field. Suddenly, however, Wagner Dodge stopped. He took out a match from his shoulder pocket, lit it, and threw it into the shoulder-high grass in front of him. So his men are watching this, and they're kind of freaking out. Like, what the heck are you doing, dummy? There was no time to light a backfire, but Wagner Dodge was not lighting a backfire at that point. He was lighting a fire that in an instant the grass was ablaze with a widening circle. And as a ring of fire spread, it cleared a small area of flammable substances. It was not much of a safety zone, but it would do. It was their only chance. He jumped over the blazing ring, moved to, his smoldering, to its smoldering center, wrapped a wet cloth around his face, pressed his face to the ground and waited as he anticipated the surging firewall surrounded both sides of this circle. It leapt over the top of this already burnt patch because it found nothing to ignite. Within moments, the front passed and raced up the ridge and left him unscathed in his tiny little asylum in this small burnt circle. He stood, he brushed off the ash, and he found that he, he was no worse for the wear. He literally had burnt a hole in the fire. Thirteen of his men decidedly, uh, had decided they would out, try to outrun the fire instead of doing what Dodge did. All of his men died trying. Two of his men burrowed in a rock slide nearby and managed to survive. Let me take that back. Two of them survived. But Wagner Dodge survived because he burned a hole in the fire. <laughs> what do I do with that story? You, like Jacob, may feel like there's no way out. You may feel that everything is pressing in on all sides. You may feel that you were set up for failure from the very beginning. But God has a plan for you. Your, your situation may seem dire, may seem impossible, but if you truly believe there is a God and that he is a God of the possible, with God all things are possible. It may not work out exactly as you'd planned. I mean, we all have our own future plans and dreams, but see, God has future plans and dreams for us. And he wants us to give in to those. Remember the one who said, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. But if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. You see, it's like, it's like standing in the midst of a fire. It's pressing in on you and you're scared to death. But instead of seeking God, you're going to try to figure out your own way. You're going to run. But the fire is going to outrun you someday. It's going to catch up to you. Demanding your own way, lying, tricking, scheming, doing everything you can to get by will ultimately catch up with you like it did with Laban. And you'll get burnt in the long run. But God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, is the one who wants to give us so much more than this life has to offer. Like Jacob, are you willing to go through the fire in order to come out alive and on the other side? Or like Laban, are you willing to connive and scheme to get your own way only to come up empty-handed in the long run? As our worship team comes forward today, I want you to kind of close with this thought in mind. With God, all things are possible. But without God, nothing is possible. Test that theory. The person who is fully surrendered to God and who completely seeks God and trusts him knows this fully and completely because they've tried it and they've, they've seen it to be true. Your situation may seem dire. Your circumstance may seem impossible to overcome. But God. I want you to remember that this week. That needs to be the two words you keep in the back of your mind. When you seem, in, when you seem up against, when your back's up against the wall, when things aren't going your way, remind yourself, but God, but God. Do you believe? Do you trust? Some of you are saying, I, I do, but it's hard. Some of you are saying, I want to, but I can't. 
There's a guy in the New Testament who had a son that had these demons in him. And the disciples were unable to cast whatever this was in this kid out. Jesus comes and he looks at the guy and he says, I can do this, do you believe? And the guy says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Some of you are at that place. You believe, but there's still unbelief in you. You trust God, but only to a point. You want to give completely, but you don't know how. You want to be surrendered, but you're still holding tight to certain things. Maybe it's hurt and bitterness or resentfulness from your childhood or teenage years. Maybe you were betrayed. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you've tried to drown that through different things to find some semblance of peace in your life, but it's only temporary. But God can set you free. And if the Son has set you free, you can be free indeed. If that's your story today, if you feel like Jacob, why don't you start now? You can head back home to where God is, to where the promise is, to where the hope is, instead of living under the oppressive weight of the Labans in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you give us hope, that you give us encouragement, and though you may not always take us out of the fire, you're with us in the midst of the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. They said, God is able to deliver us from this, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to turn or bow our heads to your gods. And as they found themselves in the midst of the scorching fire, there was one who was like the Son of God with them. Oh, Father, be with us. Give us the boldness to stand our ground, to never compromise our faith, but God, to stand on the conviction that you alone are able to save us from our circumstances and that we will surrender to you, come what may, no matter what. We'll deny ourselves daily. We'll take up our cross and follow you. Help us, Father, in our unbelief. Give us strength and courage to believe and to step into your grace no matter what our circumstances may tell us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.